You're listening to the Evanston Bible Fellowship Podcast. EBF is a community of sojourners empowering one another to cultivate gospel transformation. To learn more about our church, visit ebfchurch.org. Dear friends, do not be surprised at the painful trial you are suffering, as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice that you participate in the sufferings of Christ, so that you may be overjoyed when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted because of the name of Christ, you are blessed, for the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. If you suffer, it should not be as a murderer or thief or any other kind of criminal, or even as a meddler. However, if you suffer as a Christian, do not be ashamed, but praise God that you bear that name. For it is time for judgment to begin with the family of God. And if it begins with us, what will the outcome be for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if it is hard for the righteous to be saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? So then, those who suffer according to God's will should commit themselves to their faithful creator and continue to do good. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Good morning, church family. It's good to be with you. And for those that don't know me, my name is Timothy Allen. I serve here as lead pastor. And uh, greetings, if I haven't met you yet, I look forward to you afterwards, hopefully. And uh, greetings to those joining us via live stream as well. Um, if you haven't been around one of our services or maybe you have a question about why we do that, that kids moment, part of it is the number of families with kids that haven't been vaccinated yet that are still worshiping from home. And so continuing to loop them into the, the services and to our worship together is a, is a huge value for us as a church. And we are, um, we of course find ourselves here the day after the 20th anniversary of 9-11. And I don't know how you marked that day yesterday. Many of us remember exactly where we were when those events took place. Um, I remember quite vividly. I still have my original orders. That was the date I was to report to the recruiting station to then head down to Fort Leonard Wood to begin basic training with the U.S. Army. And of course, we all piled, all of us recruits actually from all four branches, piled in the Army office, watched the events unfold and knew that things were about to change drastically. Um, that event, I think, has given us a taste of what many around the world experience with threat of violence or bombardment raining down on them. Um, but we remember and let that inform our prayer even today as we, as we come before God and actually our prayer gathering this evening. You've been hearing about Uh, Our monthly prayer gathering, the next one is tonight at 4 o'clock at the church office. We invite everyone, if you are able to make it, we want to spend some time to pray for our church, this community, especially as uh, Northwestern ramps back up uh, for our our nation here on near the anniversary of 9-11 and for the world, for the gospel to go forward to the ends of the earth. We are also, um, next week we will be celebrating one of our very own, Danny Russell, who served so faithfully on staff here as our Director of Ministry and Operation. And you'll hear more about this later during announcements, but we have some 
some stationery, some cards in the lobby that if you've been around here a while and would like to write a note of thanksgiving and encouragement to him for his faithful service to Christ and to his church, we want to collect those. Uh, next week, we want to recognize him and celebrate him more fully, but would love, even if it's not this morning, if you wouldn't mind filling out one of those cards, you can drop it by the office. However, or even early next Sunday, we would love to get those into Danny's hands. This series that we have been in is called Sojourners and Exiles. So we've been going through the book of First Peter together, examining and being reminded of what it means to live as believers, to live between two worlds in many ways. And last week, we explored the theme of living for God and also living in light of the end. We saw that we are to live for God by embracing the call to suffer like Jesus, being, being willing to count the personal cost, and remembering ultimately who the true judge is. And then living in the light of the end, we are to do so by being clear-minded so that we can pray, by prioritizing or extending hospitality without complaining, by prioritizing deep love for one another, and using our God-given gifts to serve and to build up the body, all for the glory of God. Starting in verse 12 here in 1 Peter 4, Peter moves from living in light of the end back to their present-day circumstances and the challenges that the community of faith faced as a result of bearing the name, bearing the name of Jesus. So as we come to God's holy word, would you join me in a word of prayer? Let's pray together. Our Father, we come before you this morning grateful for your work in this world, grateful for your holy word, and remembering, remembering those events of 20 years ago. Father, we pray that you would bear up those that continue to mourn. Father, that you'd pour out your perfect peace, your comfort, your solace, your hope. And Father, we bless you, we thank you for the gift of your word. Would you grant me the humility and the boldness that is necessary to proclaim it faithfully? Prepare our hearts and lives to be strengthened, Lord, and to be challenged and changed by it. Holy Spirit, come. Illumine our hearts. Renew our faith. Magnify Jesus. In Christ's precious and holy name, amen. Amen. Several years ago, a friend of mine from school told the story of how his family held a funeral service for him after he converted to faith in Jesus Christ. You see, he was a part, and his family was a part of another religion. And we're so offended by his embracing of Christ that they held this, they essentially treated him as though he were dead and, and marked it ceremonially, marked it ceremonially as a family. I'll never forget his story, and despite the, the shame and the ostracism that he faced, he described how he came to find love and acceptance and belonging in a new family. 
I couldn't help but fight back the emotion just in thinking about this. The new family, the family of God with God as his heavenly father, with sisters and brothers, united with their elder brother, Jesus Christ. Can you imagine? Here in 1 Peter 4, 12 through 19, we encounter Peter's encouragement to believing sojourners and exiles in the face of suffering shame for bearing the name. Suffering shame for being a follower of Jesus Christ. And as we approach a text like this, I believe that there are two, two dangers, at least two dangers, but two that come to mind. One is that of trivializing or perhaps minimizing suffering in this way. We might be tempted to think, well, that only really happens in other countries, and yes, it does. I am constantly inspired by sisters and brothers that are faithfully proclaiming Christ despite the cost that are facing shame and imprisonment and violence and more because of their faith. But let us not forget those here who face ostracism from their family like my friend might be viewed as backward or oppressive based on our beliefs. Labeled, maligned, sidelined, the list goes on. And at the same time, a passage like this, I believe, calls us to evaluate whether we are living our faith out loud in such a way that, might, that some might respond to us in these ways. It, it begs the question of whether Christianity is one of our most closely kept secrets so perhaps if one danger is trivializing or minimizing suffering, perhaps one other danger is exaggerating or aggrandizing suffering for one's faith. Some who profess Christ are tempted to see suffering for their faith everywhere and adopt perhaps more of a, a confrontational approach. I'm sure you've heard some of these sorts of, we can just call them what they are, like fear-based tactics, things Rallying cries like we're losing our freedoms. We can't pray in schools anymore. We can't display the Ten Commandments in a courthouse. But this sort of suffering, because of perhaps our own provocation or our own assertion of rights, is not what Peter has in view here. Nor is suffering because of our own poor choices or even our own evil actions, what he has in view, as we'll see later in the text. Instead of trivializing suffering on the one hand or, or aggrandizing suffering on the other, I believe that passages like this give us more of a biblical view of how we are to respond when facing hostility, when we suffer shame for bearing that name of Christian. And that is what Peter addresses here. And as, as we will see, I believe it boils down to this, that we are to rejoice. <laughs> rejoice when suffering shame for being a follower of Jesus Christ. We are to rejoice when suffering shame for being a follower of Jesus Christ. Instead of being shocked when suffering shame happens or circling the wagons or even doubting God's faithfulness, we are called here to rejoice. Rejoice, or that a similar thought appears four times in this text. In verse 13, rejoice, rejoice with great joy, is another way of translating the word exceeding joy. 
And then the word praise in verse 16. And for Peter, this suffering is not hypothetical. His readers are in the midst of it now. And while he speaks of suffering as a whole, he focuses especially on this notion of suffering, shame, for being a follower of Jesus Christ. In in these verses, I believe Peter gives us seven reasons to rejoice when suffering shame for bearing the name. And these reasons also serve, in a lot of ways, as takeaways for us, where the rubber meets the road, to help us reorient our thinking and help us grapple with suffering in this hurting and broken world. And so the first reason to rejoice when suffering shame is that suffering should not come as a surprise. Suffering should not come as a surprise. Look at verse 12. Dear friends, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal that has come on you to test you, as though something strange were were happening to you. I can I I just have to admit here. Every time I read the word something strange, uh, does anyone else's mind go to Ghostbusters? Okay, thank you, Andy. I appreciate that. Something strange. Peter wants us to know that this is not something strange in our neighborhood. And I hesitate to use the word that, that this is a normal part of the Christian experience. The word normal, can, can we even use that word anymore? I had an army buddy that said, uh, what is normal? Normal's, normal? normal's just a setting on a washing machine. Well, I've looked at my washing machine lately and I can't find normal on it. I don't know about you. Lots of bells and whistles, but notice the tone though right off the, the bat here. Peter says, dear friends, you can just sense his warmth, his affection for them as he pours out his heart to these readers scattered throughout several Roman provinces. He knew they were experiencing sporadic suffering at that point for their newfound faith in Jesus Christ. And as that came up against the values of society that that had major questions about who, who this growing band of Christ followers were, but He was also preparing them for the even greater persecution that was coming under the emperor Nero. In case any of his readers were lulled into thinking that they were immune from suffering, Peter wanted to reorient their thinking and remind them that suffering is a normal part of the Christian life. Even today, many Christians, I believe, fall prey to the false idea that the Christian life is one of prosperity, is one of ease, But the reality is that scripture never promises a pain-free Christian life. In fact, 2 Timothy 3.12 reminds us, everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Christians should expect suffering to take place in their lives. And this could come about as a result of the brokenness of the world in which we find ourselves, from violence escalating to sickness, disease as we have seen, ravaging our loved ones, Suffering can also happen because of our faith in Jesus Christ. Could be being insulted in school, ostracized from our family like my my friend, being viewed as backward or yes, even oppressive by our neighbors. The list goes on. And yes, for our brothers and sisters in other parts of the world, suffering for being a Christian is even more apparent. They face threats of violence, the burning down of churches and homes, imprisonment, torture, and death. I know I've highlighted them before, but I'm constantly inspired by two brothers of mine, pastors that are serving in northern Iraq, planting churches, seeing disciples raised up. I, I just, 
marvel at the technology that keeps us connected and getting an alert on my phone and seeing about 20 new baptized believers in the midst of terrible treatment is a continuous motivation to press on in ministry, even here. Passages like this one remind us that rather than sparing us from suffering, God preserves us through it. He preserves us through it. And we need to be reminded of this so that we are not blindsided when suffering inevitably comes. At the same time, we must recognize, though, that that's why I wrestled with this word normal, that suffering is not part of God's original plan. Karen Jobs, Dr. Karen Jobs, professor emerita at Wheaton College, puts it well when she writes, misfortune and death are certainly normal in the sense that they are universally experienced. But they are not normal when viewed from God's intention in creation. The idea that normal life should always be harmonious and free from suffering, despite universal suffering and death, remains a lingering echo of life in Eden as God created it before the fall. It is also a longing for the time when there will be no more tears, suffering, pain, and death, end quote. Until that day, those who follow in the footsteps of Jesus Christ and find ourselves in the crosshairs will suffer shame because of bearing the name of Jesus. Here's the second reason. Suffering is a test that strengthens our faith. Verse 12 again. Dear friends, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal that has come on you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. I love how Eugene Peterson puts it in the message when he writes, this is a spiritual refining process with glory just around the corner. Peter wrote about this refining process earlier, if you remember, in chapter 1, verses 6 and 7. It says, in all this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. These have come so that the proven genuineness of your faith, a greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. The challenges of life prove the genuineness of our faith. And the image behind this whole notion of a fiery ordeal is that of the refining process that Peter alludes to earlier. In this process, precious metals are melted in a furnace to separate out the impurities and produce metal that is even more pure. God uses trials in our lives to test and to strengthen our faith. He wants to burn away the imperfections and prepare us even more for his presence when his glory is revealed. Here's the third reason. Suffering is a participation in Christ's own experience. Verse 13. But rejoice inasmuch as you participate in the sufferings of Christ so that you may be overjoyed when his glory is revealed. Rejoice, once more, is the main command of this passage and explains how Christians should react in the face of suffering, rejoicing like our own Savior. And Peter introduced the idea of experiencing joy in the midst of suffering back in, there in chapter 1, verses 6 through 8, and he continues to build on this theme. But one tough question for us to consider here 
is what does it mean to participate in the sufferings of Christ? Participate in the sufferings of Christ. When we suffer, it is but a taste of the suffering that Christ experienced. Paul records a similar idea in Philippians 3.10 when he writes, I want to know Christ, yes, to know the power of his resurrection and participation in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. Instead of being surprised at these fiery ordeals we encounter, we are to rejoice in suffering because it allows us to identify with the agonizing suffering, the terrible suffering that Jesus endured on our behalf on the cross. Our response should be that of, a father, that of Christ who placed himself in the Father's hands, who said, nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. The purpose of rejoicing as we share in Christ's suffering is so that you may be overjoyed when his glory is revealed. Rejoicing now in the midst of suffering anticipates and prepares us for being overjoyed, rejoicing with exceeding joy, as some translations put it, when his glory is revealed. For Christ, suffering was the pathway to glory, and so it is for us. Here's the fourth reason. Suffering leads to blessing through the Holy Spirit. Suffering leads to blessing through the Holy Spirit. Verse 14, if you are insulted because of the name of Christ, you are blessed. For the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. Here Peter expands on the theme of blessing and suffering, something he introduced in chapter 3, verse 14, when he wrote, but even if you should suffer for doing what is right, you are blessed. We might be tempted to think, what's the big deal about being insulted? You know, sticks and stones, kind of an idea. But I think some background here is especially important. And one, one scholar, um, historian, New Testament scholar, Scott McKnight, writes on this theme. He writes this, because the first century Mediterranean society was an honor-shame culture, an insult was much more than a form of criticism. Criticisms can be deflected. Being shamed, however, irreparably damages one's social standing. This is why in 4.16, Peter writes, do not be ashamed. What these Christians must learn to cope with is the loss of social standing involved with conversion and consistent with Christian living, end quote. Instead of taking these insults personally, Peter wanted them to view them as an opportunity to experience blessing, which is, you can tell that he is so affected by the teachings of Christ, who he spent so much concentrated time with. Jesus says in Matthew 5, 10 through 12, blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven. For in the same way, they persecuted the prophets who were before you. In Mark 1, verse 15, Jesus says, The time has come. The kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news, the gospel. The gospel of God is about the inbreaking of the kingdom of heaven into this, into this world. 
And when that happens, when the kingdom breaks in, there is inevitably pushback and persecution. We are surrounded by injustices that are not representative of the kingdom of heaven. And when those injustices come face to face with the inbreaking of the kingdom and agents of the kingdom that seek to bring the kingdom of God to bear, there is inevitably pushback. There is inevitably persecution. Anything that is part of the inbreaking of the kingdom, bringing God's kingdom to bear by righting the wrongs, Jesus says, leads to blessing. The fundamental reason we experience blessing when insulted is because, as he writes, the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. This verse is an allusion, I believe, to Isaiah 11 too. Isaiah promises the spirit of the Lord coming to rest upon the Messiah. And here Peter applies this prophecy to Christians as well. When we trust in Christ, the Holy Spirit becomes indelibly stamped on the life of a believer. The blessings flow from the real indwelling of the Holy Spirit. We can bear Christ's name proudly because the very Spirit of God rests upon us. Here's the fifth reason. Suffering is an indication that you bear the name of Jesus. Verse 15 and 16. If you suffer, it should not be as a murderer or thief or any other kind of criminal or even as a meddler. However, if you suffer as a Christian, do not be ashamed, but praise God that you bear the name. Peter sets up a strong contrast here in these verses. The kind of suffering we should rejoice in is not that kind that is brought on by our own poor choices or even our own evil actions. There is no honor in experiencing suffering because we have done something that is as heinous as murder or even as we might view as something as simple as meddling in other people's affairs. That, I don't know why, but that word leaps off the page to me, especially in, in line with something like murder or, or being a thief or any kind of criminal or even a meddler. It's like not letting anyone off the hook, you know? To sum it up, we should suffer for being a Christian, not a criminal. The noun Christian appears only two other times in the New Testament. And people mainly outside of the church referred to followers of Christ as Christians originally in a derogatory way. Originally in a derogatory way, but this verse shows that the community of faith eventually came to embrace, to embrace this identification. And the phrase, because you bear the name of Christ and that you bear the name, point to the reality that suffering is a badge. Suffering is a badge for the believer. It is an indication that you bear the name. The book of Acts is all about the spread of the early church and during his earthly ministry, Jesus had warned the disciples that they would experience suffering, that they would experience hardship in bearing the name. And if you look at Acts 5, picking up, say, in verse 40, the apostles are brought before the Jewish religious council. It says, they called the apostles in and had them flogged. Then they ordered them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. The apostles left the Sanhedrin rejoicing because they had been counted worthy of suffering disgrace for the name. 
you can just hear them kind of there saying, yes. What Jesus has said is coming true. So what did they do? Day after day in the temple courts and from house to house, they never stopped teaching and proclaiming the good news that Jesus is the Messiah. If you are a follower of Jesus Christ, you bear the name. Don't hide it. Don't apologize for it. And maybe the question we need to wrestle with here is how are we bearing the name of Jesus? How do we bear his name? Sixth reason for us to consider is that suffering is a challenge to maintain an eternal perspective. Verses 17 and 18. For it is time for judgment to begin with God's household. And if it begins with us, what will the outcome be for those who do not obey, obey the gospel of God? And if it is hard for the righteous to be saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Peter returns to the themes of, of judgment and the church as what he described as living stones being built into the spiritual house, chapter 2. Another tough question for us to consider is what does it mean that the judgment begins with God's household? Well, judgment is not reserved only for unbelievers. Peter's words here are informed by the tradition of the Old Testament that when God judges, he begins with his own people. He begins with his own household, especially the leaders. Look no further than Ezekiel chapter 9, Malachi verse 3 for instance. This is carried in the New Testament as well. And Matthew 25 indicates that God, that's where, where, where the sheep and the goats are separated, but judgment begins with the sheep. The Lord will purify his people. This judgment is not that of punishment or punitive in nature. No, it is so much as it is a purifying or a cleansing. And this begs the question, what does God's household us, the church, need to be purified of. What does the church need to be purified of? Another tough question to consider is how does this, this then relate to those who do not obey the gospel of God? The word gospel, good news, is the term that is often used, most often used in the New Testament to refer to this message, the life-giving message of hope of Christ giving of himself, his suffering and death on the cross and his miraculous resurrection. And the rejection of the gospel is the same as rejecting God himself. It is the gospel of God. God is the source. He is the originator of this good news that we proclaim and that we live. So Peter is using a how much more type of an analogy here, argument, to show Christians that even though they are suffering now, it is nothing. It is but a drop in the bucket compared to the suffering that those who reject God's gospel will someday experience. To drive this point home, Peter cites Proverbs eleven thirty one: If it is hard for the righteous to be saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? I believe his aim is not so much to cause Christians to doubt the security of their faith. No, or to see salvation as rare. Instead, his aim is to demonstrate the idea that salvation is a difficult thing. It was secured by nothing other than the precious blood of Christ, 
a lamb without blemish or defect. As Christians, then we realize that following Jesus on the costly road of discipleship is difficult. In Luke 13, 24, Jesus says, make every effort to enter through the narrow door because many, I tell you, will try to enter and will not be able to. Peter wants Christians to not admire the positions or the wealth of those who are causing them to suffer because they will ultimately be punished far worse than anything Christians will experience on earth. And this is a tremendous reminder to maintain an eternal perspective throughout our lives. Ultimately, all humans will be held accountable before their creator, a thought that Peter turns to with this seventh reason. Suffering should cause us to trust in our sovereign God and continue to do good. To trust in our sovereign God and continue to do good. Verse 19. So then those who suffer according to God's will should commit themselves to their faithful creator and continue to do good. In this way, this verse acts like a summary statement to the entire passage and really to the book of 1 Peter as a whole. Peter emphasizes suffering according to God's will. It is important to remember that throughout this letter, Peter is referring to innocent suffering that comes as a result of doing the right thing, that doing what is right, as he says earlier, and in obedience to God's will. The suffering that Christians endure does not catch God off guard. Suffering is not outside of the view of God. It is not outside of his sovereign view. But Christians do not suffer simply because God finds it favorable. No, suffering comes about as Christians seek to follow God rather than to pursue the wickedness of the world around us. The faithfulness of God, the faithfulness of God, he keeps his promises. When we consider his complete faithfulness, it gives us tremendous hope even in the midst of suffering. He has been faithful in the past, and he will continue to be faithful still. And in the face of suffering, we should place ourselves, we should entrust ourselves in God's hands, to God's hands like Jesus did, and continue to do what is right, to continue to do what he has called us to do. Church, this is the gospel of God. Let us look upon and marvel upon our Savior, Jesus Christ. If you wouldn't mind flipping over to Hebrews, chapter 12, verses 1 through 3. So much of this passage here comes to the forefront in what the writer of Hebrews has here in these verses. These verses, believe it or not, that Danielle and I chose to be the theme, the, the theme passage for our own marriage. Look upon Christ in these words. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles. And let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of faith. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinners so that you will not grow weary 
and lose heart. Jesus endured suffering and humiliation with a deep-seated joy, the joy that was set before him, the joy of being seated once it was finished, the joy of being seated at the very right hand of the Father, marking victory over sin and death. But on the way to this joy, did you notice in the text there, on the way to this joy, there are two obstacles, the cross and the shame. The cross and the shame. The cross stands for all of his agonizing suffering, all of the pain that he endured, all of the torture, the darkness that descended upon the land, the blood that was poured out for you and for me. But the shame is one particular agony of the cross that the writer of Hebrews chooses here. chooses here to emphasize. Think about this. His closest followers shamefully abandoned him, turned tail and ran. His ministry, his reputation gave way to shameful mocking. His body was uncovered in shameful nakedness. His dignity gave way to completely undignified and utterly humiliating death, this death on a cruel Roman cross. As Jesus' body was broken in humiliation on the cross, he took on the shame, the guilt and shame of every wrong in all of human history, every murder, every brutality, every genocide, every hatred, every crime, And his death righted every wrong in your life and covered the shame of all of your sins, your lies, your selfishness, your anger, your arrogance, and your greed. Church, Jesus paid it all. to this shame of the cross and to our shame that he took upon himself, Jesus says, I despise you. To this shame, or I scorn you as the NIV has. The cross and the shame gave way to joy as three days later, Jesus rose triumphantly from the dead, conquering sin and death and is now seated at the right hand of the Father. So church, arise. Rejoice when suffering shame for bearing the name so that you are even more prepared for that exceeding joy that will occur when his glory is revealed. Do not be ashamed, but praise God that you bear the name of the one who loved us enough to take our shame upon himself and pay it all. Amen, church? Amen. Let us pray. Our Father, we recognize that suffering is not the way it's supposed to be, but that it is a reality post-fall. Lord, creation groans as we await the day you will right every wrong, you will wipe away every tear from our eyes. And in the in-between, O Lord, bear us up 
Strengthen us for your service. Cause us through your spirit to rejoice even when suffering, as mind-boggling that might be. To rejoice in suffering, shame for bearing the name of Christ. May we bear his name boldly and proudly, entrusting ourselves to you and continuing to do what you've called us to do, Lord. Refine your church. Prepare us for the exceeding joy when your glory is revealed. May we not be ashamed, but praise you that we bear the name of the one who took our shame upon himself and paid, paid it all. We love you. And we pray this in Jesus' precious, matchless name, looking forward to his return in glory. Amen. Thanks for listening to this week's message. To hear more messages from EBF, subscribe to our podcast. And to find out how to get connected with our church, visit ebfchurch.org.